I'm Stuart McLeod, CEO and co-founder of Carbon. Welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with the world's top accounting leaders. Today, my guest is Heather Townsend, all the way from the UK. It was great to sit down with Heather for today's podcast. This is actually the first time I'd met her, and she immediately demonstrated immense knowledge of the accounting landscape. We got into the intricacies of her career, like her promotions, and her capacity to be well prepared, and the growth that she's helped many partners and firms achieve over the years. Let's get into today's podcast with Heather Townsend from the Accountant Millionaires Club. Heather Townsend, good afternoon, and welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm so pleased you've invited me. You, you've got a very interesting background, right? You've been helping executives, helping accountants, helping partners with their firms and, and uh, helping uh, practices grow and, and scale. Let's go back to the start, though. How, how, did, how did this aspect of your career come about? And, and I know you've got a lot of experience at BDO, so that, that, that's probably pretty interesting as well. But let's go back to your education and, and talk about how you sort of fell into the coaching and, and yeah. uh, the industry as well. <laughs> I think fall into it is probably the right word. So I, I was sponsored through uni to go engineering. I I had a job waiting for me at an engineering firm and I wasn't very good at it, if I'm absolutely honest. I was a hard grafter, so I did enough to get by. But when my friend said to me, look, Heather, if you ever design a bridge, tell us so we can stay well clear of it. There's a message in there, isn't there? Is so- it too soon? You weren't designing apartment towers in Miami, were you? <laughs> No, 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 no. But if, if you are in the Middle East, there is there is a borehole that I would stay well away from. But but yeah, so I I then switched into the world of logistics supply chain management, ended up working for Tesco. So people may not know the name Tesco's, but they are the biggest supermarket retailer in the UK. Well, they were until Amazon started hoovering up all everybody's money. At one point, <laughs> at one point, one pound in every eight was spent at Tesco's in the UK economy in terms of consumers. So it gives you an idea. And Tesco is a great place, but it's a place where people have come up through the shop floor. So they don't value really sharp quickness of mind. Of course, they value commerciality. And actually, my greatest strength, that sharpness, that quickness, that sheer intelligence, you know, I went to Oxford University, got a 2-1, despite not being very good at the subject, gives you an idea, was not being valued. So when they, che- they when they had a, a board level restructure, I took that opportunity to take the redundancy and go to uh, BDO. I took the move into professional services because I knew there would be an environment as a as a learning and development professional, which was my trade at that point, that would really value. And actually, my biggest weakness became my biggest strength there. You know, I'd be up in front of partners who would feedback to my boss, going, "Yes, yeah, really sharp. She gets it very quickly. Good hire." And that's that's how I came. And I was in a role where I was doing a little bit of coaching, a little bit of business partnering, a little bit of internal consultancy, a little bit of learning design, a little bit of delivery. But ultimately, it, it was grounded on the two things. What does it take to grow our practice through our people? And what does it take to help progress our people's skill set? And that's what I spent four years doing. And that's how I fell into accountancy. So, so that's a challenging role at a place like BDO, right? I mean, you've got probably a fair, you know, what's that, 10 10 years ago or so, a fairly male-dominated environment, I imagine, 
partners that you know are focused on bringing in revenue and 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 here you are sort of you know bringing learning frameworks and education to them and their teams how how, how did you how did you sell your services to? to, to <laughs> <laughs> we well dominated well, 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 Stuart, but let's not go there. But actually, <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I know you did, but I wasn't going to let that one go. You know, <laughs> but the, the the important thing is here is I'd come through a logistics background before I moved into learning and development. We have this phrase in the UK that HR is the pink and fluffy lot. And I always differentiated myself by not being pink and fluffy, by being the person that was able to bring the business needs to what was required. So, you know, and 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 actually that's what happened at BDO. You know, I wasn't the one that was going, oh, we've just got to do the right thing. I was like, right, what is stopping you from growing your business? How are you being hindered? What is it that needs to happen? And I was I would always have a business conversation first and foremost. And then if there were development needs, training that needs to be done, programs that need to put in, that would come in next. So I was probably, I went in there as a junior member of the team. Within a year, I was seen as the most senior member of the team because of the expertise I brought. And it was because I wasn't, you know, training gets a bad rap of being all about, let's have fun in the classroom. And, you know, we're still trying to get over that. So at my heart, I'm always someone that is a, as a developer and an educator. And actually that's, Probably what I'm really well known for is my ability to take the whole everything's happening here and condense it into what is it that you really need to know? How do you really take what can be a very complex subject? So I was the first person in the marketplace and I was actually asked by the Financial Times Guide, well, the Financial Times, which I don't know whether the people know the brand, but it's the most respected financial publisher, which had a books arm and they they ran well, they have a series of um, the Financial Times Guide. And because of my ability to, I was the first person, it sounds weird, but back in 2010, I was the first person that was really showing how to use social media to grow your business. Because at the time, we had a lot of people having a party. Those were the social media marketers because they, they'd well and truly got their crayons out and they were playing. <laughs> then you had, you know, then you had the died in the wool, you know, you'll never be able to do business without having the whites of the eyes. It's never going to take off. This is a fad. And I was the first person that knitted it together and said, it's not about either or, it's about and. And I got asked, you know, my ability to sort of take those really complex and put it into basic how-tos was the reason I was asked to write the book. And actually, that's the reason I think I've been successful in doing what I'm doing and the ability to help accountants. Because if you read anything of my stuff, which there's a lot out there, so don't, you know, don't think you can do it in just one weekend. You know, you'll see it's very how-to practical. I'm not the sort of person that sells the sizzle and then doesn't provide the bacon or the instructions of how to eat it. And so the, the partners at BDO, tell us some stories about, you know, perhaps something that comes to mind with a with a partner that was was maybe perhaps a bit um, reticent or perhaps a young up-and-comer that, that was perhaps getting ahead of themselves or something. Tell, tell us a story about, you know, a, a success story of how, how your leadership and how your sort of frameworks helped them become successful. And I think the first thing to say is that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, let's let's progress a bit, and and you can you can take a story from any part of the last fifteen years. Then, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I've been, I've been you know since two thousand and nine, been running my own business, helping accountants grow. And I think I'm just going to do 
uh, fairly over the last three years, I've been working with somebody called Paul Dono, and he was, you know, leading business award winning, used to be, you know, the poster boy for Sage, pushing ahead with cloud accounting. And, you know, we first met when he was up for new practice of the year because he'd left a practice, started a practice, had a nice chat. He did the whole, he went away thinking, nice chat. Don't think she can help me. Fast forward to 2018 and he's reached a plateau in his practice. And that was three years ago. And he didn't think he could get it above 250. Fast forward to now three years later, he's now hitting the half a million. He's actually doubled it. And what was it that made the difference? So Paul is one of those that you would see as one of those roughy tufty I know it all, <laughs> great guy, absolutely, you know, on, on the board of one of the institutes, really, really love working with him. And for me, the big thing was to help him get the mindset that he couldn't do everything, that he needed to let he, you know, he's a great, there's a lovely bit of um, concept, and I can't remember what the authors of the book, but it's kind of, the book is called Rocket Fuel, and it talks about, Often within a business, you need a visionary and an integrator, whereas a visionary often runs the bigger accounts, has the great ideas, but is woeful about implementing and executing. And that's pulled to a T. And a lot of the work I did was helping him move over that integrator side, the person that was run the business, to, to his daughters, to get him to stop feeling as if he had to do everything to work out when he was best utilised, and actually also to be a confidence and a sounding board. It's really lonely out there when you're growing your practice. And so many people think that the need to go from 250 half a million is all about winning business. And actually, when you get to that 250 mark, you're pretty good at winning business. You've got it sorted. The real skill is ev- the other parts of growth. And in my opinion, that's often what's missed out in the marketplace right now. People think growth is, how do I win the next people- piece of business? And it's just... So much more than that. And well, let's dig into that. What I've always sort of thought that there's there's three ways accountants can make more money, right? Is is increase prices, get more clients, or do more with what you have today. If you take I mean it's pretty simple business at a tart. People love to complicate it dramatically, extensively, right? But which bit of those three do you focus on the most or or what 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 which one of those resonates the best? <laughs> We tend to do all three because it's it's never quite it's people never need one thing. It's a bit, it's more of a flywheel than a a pillar base. <laughs> you think about the start of a practice journey. It's actually can you win business? You know, up until fifty thousand pounds in the UK in terms of Australian dollars, that'd be about a million. <laughs> yeah, and and in the US, that'd probably be about sixty to eighty thousand US dollars type stuff. It is, it is all about can I win business and do I enjoy doing it? Then you get to this point where suddenly you run out of time and you realise that, you know, you, you've got to do something differently. So there's a first thing about actually do you have the mindset to want to do something differently? Because a lot of people are quite happily running a nice practice that's just them. And actually when it's just you, you can run it incredibly profitably and actually, you know, That first bit is probably the most profitable part of your practice, but you're the only person in there. So you then have to bring in a team member. Then so suddenly practice efficiently suddenly starts to matter. This whole being able to lead and manage people, which a lot of accountants that go in to run their own practice have not got experience at. They didn't get taught that in what they did. 
And so suddenly you've got this need, as you say, you said it comes down to can we do more for less? And actually, that's a very simplified view. But there's a lot of unpicking with that because you've got the first of all, can I can I actually get this team member to work the way I want them to? And so many people fail to get much beyond that point because they never quite crack the whole running it with a team. Can I get the the process and system so we can do this efficiently? You know, that's where carbon, a lot of our members love carbon because it helps them really process and systemize what they're doing. Can I trust this person? And then often what we find is when people start to bring in those first couple of people is that the prices that they once charged are too cheap because it's not matched to their business model. You know, and suddenly their profit margin is just being squeezed because you've got the software cost. You might have to bring in premises if you decide to operate it that way. You've got the cost of paying your staff. This is where this whole the need to put your fees up arises from, right from that real need. And it's often from that sort of where people at the at the one to three people sort of stage, I need to put my prices up because otherwise I just plateau. I hit this point where the profits low in my business my team are costing me an arm and a leg. I'm the lowest paid in my business, or I seem to be the lowest paid in my business. There's a problem here. So often, as you say, you come back to those three things. What is it? Well, it's you've still got to carry on winning business. But actually, often people have to put their prices up at that point or they go no further. You know, the, the rock bottom prices they charge when it was them in a study doesn't work anymore. And then you've got to go those early stages of getting to grips with a team. You know, if you get that sorted out, you get to sort of three to five people or if you're going an outsourced offshore model, you get into the point where you do need a presence within your home country. And you're at about two, 250 pounds. So about half half a million Australian dollars, about 350 US dollars type stuff. Nice little business. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, this is the point where you have to move from being the business. You've actually, at this point, you've got to start to get some members of your staff to be truly client-facing, to start to run that portfolio. And this is where trust becomes a massive issue. This is where having control of your workflow, this is where that whole practice efficiency and, and making sure that that is correct and ready and that leadership point of it is so much more important now than just being able to win business. Because actually, when you've got that size of portfolio, if you do a good job with your internal marketing to existing clients, you'll get more from them. They'll recommend more. And actually, as long as you've not got really fast growth aspirations, you will grow steadily. It might only be 10%, 20% a year, but you will grow steadily at that point. But so many people fail to make that transition for that five to 50 angle that I've now got a need to put in a leadership team. I need to make sure that leadership team can run the business without being. I need to now move from the most chargeable to the least chargeable. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And that's okay. And I, I, I don't want to fetish growth. No, no, no. But you got to be honest with yourself at that point, right? Like that's that's probably the most important thing. What do I want out of this? If I want to keep going, fine. If I don't, also fine. But be honest with yourself, your family and your staff that that's what you want. <laughs> yeah. And, and and this is the really important thing is, you know, we fetish growth, don't we? Those firms that are growing are the successful ones. Well, it's, it's even worse in our industry, you know, software, Silicon Valley, TechCrunch, you know, like if, if you read that, if you if you internalise that too much, you... Uh, you feel like a miserable failure in the in a very successful business. And, and I want to make this real point because you see it on social media, particularly amongst accountants, that there's a couple of things. Now, I've judged 
a lot of UK accountancy boards. And through the work we've done with our members, with the 10 plus years of helping small accountancy firms grow, I've seen most of the books of these high profile firms. And let's just say they're not a pretty picture, uh, you know. <laughs> There's a few leaky taps in there, right? <laughs> There's a huge amount of leaky tap, taps there. Huge, huge, huge. So the first thing is to realise that the things you see on the surface may not mirror the reality. The second thing is, and I don't want to use the word that Mark Manson used in his book, but imagine that there's a stronger word to use than bad goals. But he has this concept that very often that we're going after the wrong goals. He, He uses the term shitty goals. And very often as an accountancy firm owner, we have the wrong goals. We have the wrong idea of what success means. Success means that you can look in the mirror in the morning and feel happy and fulfilled. It's not about your bank balance. It's not about what car you're driving. Too often we lose sight of what real success is. It's about being happy and fulfilled. That's not limited to accounting firms. Let's let's guarantee that. (laughs) That's why I'm not the sort of person that says, oh, you can only be successful if you're growing. But if you think about all of the awards applications that accountants are doing, it talks about your growth, your growth. How much have you grown? What's your profit? And actually, for a lot of firms, when they get to they, the breaks go on between 250 and half a million because of this whole profitability thing, that they find that they're working really hard to pay everybody else. And actually, you often have got to significantly move the business model, either the prices you charge, the services that you deliver, what you're there to deliver, what's the right blend of what you're doing, what other people are doing. And that's why so many people don't take that next step. They might want to because you know, a lot of people are growing their firm because it's their pension plan. Here in the UK, we have this strange value way of valuing a practice. We value on turnover to about 750,000 turnovers. So that's about 1.5 million US Australian dollars. That's about a million dollars US. We value it on on turnover, gross recurring fees. And it's it's typically around about a one point multiplier. And so a lot of people are trying to get to that point because they retire at 55, pension pot tick, done. Can't go and play golf. <laughs> yeah. So actually, as long as your practice has got enough to pay you up until that point, they're not actually, in valuation terms, too bothered about the profitability of their practice. And it's the, is it, I, I don't know where, what it's like in the... It's a weird model. Yeah. I don't know whether it's the same in other parts of the world, but that's what it is in the UK. So it's there's no incentive to grow a profitable practice beyond being able to pay for nice holidays and keep your wife or husband happy. <laughs> or both. <laughs> or both, yeah. Or, or have something that keeps you away from them because you don't want to spend time, you know. We won't pontificate on, on the success or otherwise of people's marriages, of course, or preferences. Well, a couple of comments. Yes, it's very, it's very similar here in the US. I would add we've seen some successful customers, you know, sell for upish of two and three times multiples because they've just, you know, they've been able to progress the conversation out of gross revenue and into success and profitability and and reliability and, and, you know, operational efficiency and all of that. So, you know, we, we, we obviously love seeing that as, you know, successful carbon customers. But, but yeah, no, look, 99% of, of firm owners uh, fall in, into the trap that you've, you've just described, definitely. Yeah. And it's an interesting, and when you get to half a million, this is the point where your growth, so it often really slows down between 250 to half a million. And 
it's going to sound weird, but actually getting to 250, getting to 50 is easier than getting to 150, which is easier than getting to 250. Actually, the really horrible, horrible bit of growth is then 250 to half a million. If you can get to that half a million and you can get your profitability right, a couple of things happen is you have cash. So you can actually get the resource in. You don't need to beg, borrow, steal, part-time, outsource, freelance. You can actually buy quality. And that's something. So, you know, I mean, that's made a massive difference in our business, being able to get another operations PA for me. Oh, yeah. Makes a difference in all kinds of businesses, right? Like, you know, our, our, our journey, first four or five years are, are really hard. The the last year has been super, super fun because we've got some resources, we've got some cash and we're growing at a million miles an hour, right? Like it's, it's, ne- there's never enough resource. So the number of staff that you need is N plus one. <laughs> always, always. But the interesting thing is when you get to that half a million, you, you've got good people around you. You've got a leadership team there. Now, they might not be at the point where they can run the business without you, but to go from that half a million to a million, people will often accelerate their growth through acquisitions because you've got the cash in the bank to buy the 50 grand book of business, the 100 grand book of business. You've got the money to buy somebody as a senior fee earner that will run a portfolio. And often that's an acqui-hire anyway. If you if you find a good a practice with a good person or a couple of good people in it and, you, and your values are aligned, then that, that can be a, a very good way to grow. And interestingly, I know people who, because the, the marketplace, the talent market, so here in the UK, I know that Australia currently is quite badly as part of it in lockdown and really struggling. And I know the US is very variable depending where you're based. But here in the UK, we've still got high levels of COVID, but we've vaccinated enough people that the government's basically said, you've had your, you've had your choice, we're now opening up. So we've had this massive bounce back. We've got two things happening in our marketplace. Is One is there's, we had about a 12-month window where nobody kind of resigned because they wanted to keep their jobs. So we've got we've got a pent-up demand of a, the bastards, I'm ready to leave. But we've also got a lot of people that that have spent time working from home that have gone, hang on a minute, do I really want to be here? Do I want to do things differently? So we've got a real problem with hanging on to people. There's It's really hard to recruit right now. And so it's it's an interesting time. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk a bit about that though. So my my theory is, you know, pre-COVID, the the number one problem that firms were faced with is talent acquisition and retention. COVID came along and and sort of that dissipated a bit while the whole world went into panic and was trying to work out what the hell was going on. I think that that issue will will start to resurface and, and what you're saying it sort of already has in the U- in UK, yeah. It's to the point where candidates are coming to interview with unrealistic expectations of what money they can get and they're sticking to that because they know they've got another three, four... Yeah, offers wait, waiting for them. Yeah, and they know that they can have their demands of working partly from home or working fully remotely because... From the island in Greece, like, why, why wouldn't you? I mean, I think the days of, you know, the the wood partitioning and sitting on, what what do you have, the M1? Yes, yeah, the, the, <laughs> one of our first motorway, yes. For two hours a day are just have, have disappeared, right? Like, it's it's just not in anybody's lexicon anymore. It's not going to happen. So I quite miss people coming to the office, you know, two or three days a week. I, I love the social interaction and the and the joy that you get from sharing ideas and in person. We're starting to get back to that now. Everybody's vaccinated where we are. 
you know, these hybrid models, are, are particularly in a service-based industry like accounting, is, is going to be very, very common. And if you're not think, if if you as a firm leader are not thinking that way, there's no way that you're going to attract a 30-year-old with 10 years experience for, I don't know what you're paying them, £100 or something, £120. The other problem is accountants by their very nature are cautious. Accountants by their very nature are attuned to keep their overheads low. So we have a situation where you've got small accountancy firm owners trying to get people in on the cheap. That's often in the mindset. You know, we have a considerable amount of people that are culturally attuned to wanting to do things on the cheap. It's, it's a bit of a British thing to, you know. <laughs> is, that, is that too harsh? <laughs> I'd be very careful. It's not necessarily the British thing, but, you know, certain populations of the accountancy, and I'm, I'm being very, very sensitive. It is an accountant's trait, that's for sure. <laughs> so as a result, they, they leave it late to hire. At the, that point, they're then desperate. So what happens is they, they're, they're over-trading, you get churn with clients, People get hacked off and burnt out, so you might even get more churn with people. So you then get – and what people are not doing is really thinking about their talent plan six to 12 months out. They're not aligning that with their growth plans because, let's be honest, have they got a growth plan? And, you know, taking your point pre-COVID, the shortage of talent was definitely one of the major issues here in the UK. You know, we're, ever since I entered the world of accountancy in 2004 – Barring the four years after the 2008 credit crunch, it's always been there's a war for talent. You know, it's just like that. And we have it compounded here in the UK is that so we've got got the government's tax authority. So we would call the HMRC is very much moving to where the Australian. So the ATO, the Australian tax office is going. So we're starting to move to not quite real-time tax returns, whether corporation or personal tax returns. The payroll stuff is is more or less real-time, isn't it? Yeah, monthly. Yeah, we have to input our figures monthly and they go to the revenue. We also now on tax returns having to do that quarterly as well. So the sales tax returns, which we would call VAT here in the UK, we, we've been doing that quarterly for a while, but they're now moving the next two years to take individuals, so sole traders, so people that run unincorporated businesses and partnership structure, and also landlords are now having, in two years' time, will need to do five personal tax returns, now called declarations, rather than just one. And that is a massive, massive resource problem. Well, there's an educational thing to kind of get what most people would call as the small clients to properly use digital tools, which they now have to, to have a separate bank account, not treat their personal bank account, their business bank account like their personal bank account, that actually they need to keep their books up to date. You know, a lot of these people would would once a year get a stash full of receipts, hand them over to their accountant and go, do my return for me, please. And you just can't do that four times a year. Just can't do that. And so we've got we've got this, hey, a lot of people have, and, and some of the practices furloughed. So we had something where furloughed. I don't know whether that was where you could say to somebody, we're keeping your job open, the government's paying some of your money, but we don't, we're going to kind of put you paid redundant, temporarily redundant. And so you had, so you had people that were, had their, their salaries reduced, their working hours reduced at the start of the pandemic. So, you know, there's a lot of people going, stuff this, I'm going into industry, I'm leaving the profession. So we have this major issue that we don't have good people. 
And the outsourcers are going, thank you very much. The outsource model is re- reasonably predominant in the UK, right? Uh, outsource slash offshoring. So, you know, I've been working, I, I worked alongside one outsourcer for quite some time. And in the, so I started working with them in 2013. I stopped working with them about a year ago, quite directly. And actually the whole industry in that time has gone from a hard sell, you know, oh, quality, we can't do this. We did it once, we were bitten, to actually a very acceptable. And to be honest, in terms of that growth journey, particularly to go from 50 to half a million, it's a lot harder to do that by bringing in people in the UK on a permanent basis because you just don't have the profit margin to pay, you know, okay, you might get away with 16 grand for a green apprentice out of school, but if you're getting a qualified accountant, you're not going to get much change out of 35 grand. You know, that means you've got to have you've got to have headway on your you know, four grand of profit margin. And typically, if you've not hired, that's what you're paying yourself. The pie is not big enough at that stage of your business to get to, get it to go around everybody, is it? <laughs> In the club, one of the things we do is we have something called a daily power-up where we actually speak to people between nine and half nine that we're there. Our growth specialists are there. It's not, you know, it's not a Facebook group. It's not a come along to us once a month. It's actually there's real people there to answer your questions. And actually... We went round and someone said, I'm not getting I'm not getting the return out of this outsourcing offshoring arrangement. And we went round and literally everybody was outsourcing or offshoring to some extent that was there in that room. Out of our 45 members, I'd say probably only 10 to 20 percent don't outsource or offshore something of their accounts or bookkeeping. I'm sure that'd be a lot higher than it is here in the US. I, th- I think you can still sort of yeah, I mean, offshoring is is just a way of improving your mar or or getting the margins that you need, right? So I, I think I think the labour market in the US still allows you to sort of, you know, o- operate profitably, but it, it's definitely increasing, but it's not nowhere near that that kind of volume here. And interestingly, so our members tend to be very ahead of the curve, they because they're growing. So they're not representative of the profession in total. But there are other reasons why people outsource, and it's not just for profitability. And yes, it can be very profitable. A lot of people do it because it's flexible resource. Yeah, your elastic resource. If if you've got a vol- volume of work, you, you can scale up easily, more easily. And some of the outsourcers offshorers will do it on an outsource model that's fixed fees, pay as you go. So you don't have to commit to this fixed seat. But actually you know, you're also getting rid of a problem. You know, it's really difficult to hire, really, really difficult to hire right now. Getting part qualified, which is what everybody wants. Part qualified, you know, when, you, when you're under that 250, everybody wants that part qualified because you develop them into the qualified. They're cheaper to get in at that point. You can you can afford to do so. But if, if you part qualified, well, you've got no incentive to leave if you part qualified because normally your employer is paying for you to finish. This whole part qualified, newly qualified is the utopia that everybody seems to want when they're under under 250K because they'll do a bit of bookkeeping, they'll do some year-end accounts. And the reality also, particularly here in the UK, is, is getting good cloud-based bookkeepers are really difficult to find because either they're new to cloud bookkeeping and they want to do, they, they don't see bookkeeping as the we are management by exception. We manage flows of information in and we're giving insight from that because that's what a good cloud bookkeeper does. You know, the traditional bookkeeper wants to take one receipt, match it off, download a statement, reconcile it, 
and it's a very difficult different way of thinking and it's, it's far more about technology the ability and the ability to be really good with clients and and that's what people are looking for this understanding of automation auto publishing bank rules putting those cloud infrastructure together and understandably given so i went on to zero in 2010 and i was one of the early adopters in the uk not the earliest but actually if you think about it in you know in terms of cloud bookkeeping the really good people that understand it they've only been coming into the profession in the last 10 years and so there's a shortage and they're expensive you know, it's getting to the point where it's almost as it's almost as expensive to buy a really, really good, capable, you know, bookkeeper, cloud bookkeeper that really understands it, that will do a bit of management accounts than it is to get a newly qualified that will do your year end accounts for you. Where do you think the technology is up to in terms of, you know, let's say not replacing, but but augmenting, you know, bookkeeping and, and the lower end of the workflow? Now, it's really interesting because you see a lot of a lot of trying to do automated bookkeeping solutions coming along that are trying to do this whole automated artificial intelligence machine learning. Now, I think when most people talk about artificial learn artificial intelligence, they're talking about machine learning. And they're not actually, you know, I, I look at my digital bank account and that now recognizes when a regular payment mandate is set up and so now forecast for me. That's machine learning. That's not artificial intelligence. So I don't think I think we're a long way off in artificial intelligence. We have we had a, a very high profile cash flow solution that used artificial intelligence. And at the time we were not using a um we didn't have a, a strong recurring revenue line. You know, strategically that's why we built up the club because it gave us a strong monthly subscription model. But it only tended to be accurate with its artificial intelligence if you had a really well easily predictable. So actually, artificial intelligence doesn't work for forecasting and is unlikely to. Because as soon as that pandemic hit, this software, which was much loved, its edge in the marketplace just left because no artificial intelligence could predict the pandemic and the turbulence that followed and when we were going to come in lockdown, out of lockdown. So I think machine learning is a massive, massive tool for both software and business owners. You know, I'm not the only one that appreciates things like zero being able to auto fill some of the things in without me telling it because it's, you know, that stuff is great. I think we are starting to see the point where the new trainees into the profession, I have to ask, what is the point of teaching them how to put a set of, we have here in the UK, it's not, we don't have it. I know it's not in the US. We have to do statutory annual accounts where you have to do your annual accounts in such a way, in such a format. And then submit that to the the regulator, and every business needs to do that. And I'm I'm asking the question of actually the youngsters coming in today. Do we need to be teach at particularly the younger end, at the small end of the profession? Do they really need to be a financial accountant? Do we need to teach them to be a management accountant and understand them to know what a balance sheet is? Do they need to do they need to actually prepare? No. I think we're getting to the point, particularly at the the really small end of the marketplace, where we should start to be seeing if you've got a clean trial balance. You know, Zero have been telling us for years if you've got a clean trial balance, we'll be able to turn it around within an hour. Still not seen that yet, but we 
you know, the amount of, yeah, that was back in 2010. Poor Gary, he's, he's, he's retiring, <laughs> having aimed at that goal. <laughs> but actually, I think we are getting a lot closer to that utopia of where, you know, the reality is if you've got everything coded up correctly in your accounts and you've got established rules of where things go, you shouldn't be able to, you should just be able to hit the button. We're also getting to the point within the UK where if you're doing returns four times a year, there's a lot less manoeuvrability of, should we code that in this quarter and put an accrual in here type stuff? Yeah, yeah. You're only playing around the edges now, right? <laughs> you can't get away with as much. <laughs> We've got that real problem, and it's not just accountancy education. It, it's, it's you know, it's school education where technology's moved on so quickly. It, you know, it takes years to agree a formal curriculum. And by the time they've agreed it, it's moved on. And we've got this real problem where actually, in my view, we're teaching the wrong skills to our trainees. We need far more about client service. We need far more about the commercial understanding, not just what the rules of tax are and profitability, but actually getting them to understand the story with behind the numbers is the bit we're missing at the moment. Completely. I mean, we, you know, you know in America, the, the accountants that we speak to, which is very, which is it's multiple times a day usually, there is a disincentive to be certified, So you know, because of the litigious and insurance issues you can imagine in America. You know, we, we as a client would value somebody's capacity to understand the numbers, you know, 100 times greater than their capacity to fill in a tax return or prepare a set of stat accounts, the equivalent of, I know we don't have that, that term here. I think you're right. I think there is a shortage of people that in the accounting industry, you know, cash, money can be abstract. It's just a a concept. It's not an actual thing. Whereas a business owner, you know, (laughs) I mean, we we had had an issue when we first arrived in, in, you know, our expat taxes and they were a lot... They were, we were kind of paying them to work for the IRS. They, they didn't feel like they were working for us. You know, oh, I just pay this, you know, 75 grand to the IRS because, it, you know, the junior says that it looks like you owe it to them. It's like, hang on a sec, you're not working for them, you're working for us and we're paying you 15 grand to, you know, to get the most conservative view of the world. It's, and hang, yeah, anyway, that, that was our story. But so where to from here, you know, like we're, globally there's a talent shortage Offshoring is not the utopia, but it it is part of the solution. Governments around the world are getting more highly or introducing, you know, ever more regulation, not less. So the workload continues to increase. I mean, account- accountants all of, overnight became the purveyor of government revenue, right? Like they they were they were the gatekeepers distributing, you know, PPP here and. Job keeper and job seeker in Australia. What did you guys have? We have bounce back loans, furlough, and a number of grants type stuff. So, questions: Where where next for the profession? So, I think those that are quite a long distance away, the sort of cloud adoption, are now into cloud two point zero, where they're not going, oh, new software. So, we're starting to see people differentiate their service beyond compliance. And it's not just advisory. So we're starting to see those people kind of go, are we growth experts? Are we good at tax? Are we industry experts, for instance? Yes. So we're starting to see what I would call a real demarcation of what does it mean to be advisory. I think 
we're also seeing in the technology ecosystem, we're now seeing, so we had a proliferation of apps. We're now seeing a massive consolidation where the likes of the QuickBooks, the Zeros, the Sages are buying up the challenger apps to pad out their offering, but also make their ecosystem more sticky. And I think we will see much, much more of that happening. I think we've only just started. You know, I think the cash flow apps are ripe to be now bought. You know, we've We've bought the ability to get the information into our apps, you know, the the receipt banks and the auto entries and the hub docs, you know, auto entry bought, hub doc bought, Dex, to be fair to it, you know, went and got has got quite decent investor funding. So we I think we'll start to see the cash flow apps that are good now being bought to to pad out the offering. I don't know what's gonna happen. I I do I do think that we are going to still have to be very, very good at compliance. I don't think there's any getting away from that. No, it's only increasing the, the compliance workload, isn't it? Yeah, and, and we have to remember in most countries, the people that only need compliance are 95% of the business owners and private individuals out there or more than that. You know, it's only a few tiny percentage that need that advisory bit. We have to remember that most business owners are lifestyle. What they're doing is they're freelancers, really. They may have one person, but what they don't need is a lot of bells and whistles. What they need is just somebody that's going to help them sleep at night because the pieces of paper are being filed digitally with the right authorities at the right time and they're paying the right amount of tax. So I do think we're going to see a lot of that. Now, there's an interesting there's interesting questions about are the big accounting platforms and banks now looking to get into that conversation directly. And we're, we've got something called our open banking here in the UK. Yeah, which has improved things greatly, right? Yeah, so there's a real question mark is, you know, are we going to see QuickBooks Live and TurboTax Live and the equivalent free agent has done something very similar? Are they going to start to step in where the accountant is? Are we going to see these compliance factories actually take root because you know most people don't need anything more and it's much more than that let's be honest you know covid with all you know as you say the accountants became the purveyor of all the government money actually gave the accountants a very very busy time for definitely here in in the uk it's still high because people have realised their accountants are quite useful now and that they're at the end of the phone and that's what they're paying for. And so they are ringing up and emailing much more than they did. So, Can you see a world where like a Barclays or an RBS buys zero or something like that? Yes. I mean, and NatWest, one of our big national banks, bought free agent. You know, and the point they bought free agent, it was the size of QuickBooks in the UK. Okay, QuickBooks is part of Intuit, which is a massive software house. But we're already seeing that. You know, we're already seeing some of the challenges are actually the integrated bank and purchase and sales ledger, where it's all in one place. So we, we're going to see much, much more merging of what it is you can do with the data because you've now got visibility of both the banking side, which you never used to sit walled off within the bank. So you've got this massive opportunity to actually in a real time to see what's coming on. And I think that's what's making life very, very interesting here in the UK, that whole big data, that whole analysis. But of course, what you're also, but HMRC, that's our regulator, tax 
body can also start to see that information. So I actually think we're going to see far more investigatory works because there's far more data and there's the computing power to understand where there's a problem. So it really is. There will be a lot more, hang on a minute, that doesn't match up. Let's go in and do an investigation. I think we're going to see that globally, not just in the UK, with that power of data. I think the accountant's role is very much needed. I think the bookkeeper role will carry on evolving until it's the person that really helps get the numbers correct at source and flowing in efficiently. It's not about being a bean counter anymore. I think we're going to see a massive move to what we would call fi- uh, management accounting rather than financial accounting. Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's the whole, you know, the difference between looking in the rearview mirror, which is, you know, where accounting's been for the last 4,000 years and, and <laughs> looking forward to what's ahead is the ne- hopefully the next 4,000 years. I mean, it makes a big difference as a business owner that with an accountant that understands the, the dramatic difference between the two. Yeah, and I think you'll see the bigger firms that are dealing with the bigger businesses still have that financial accountant that sort of IFRS expert because actually when you're doing massive group consolidated accounts, you do need to know all of this stuff. And it is a very, very big role to produce year-end accounts for that. But actually for the majority of businesses, they don't need that expertise. So I think we're going to see far more that the whole bookkeeping, management accounting becomes so much more important. We're going to see so many more firms bring their bookkeeping function in-house because actually they're going to need that control over it just to just to be able to do all of the compliance tasks. No, completely. Uh, we're wrapping up here shortly, but... Um... What's next for Heather and, and the Millionaires Accountants Club? Tell us a little bit about that and, and where you're going and the benefits that, uh, that that your members are seeing. Absolutely. So our members now, because we've been, we've been live now for three and a half years. So we're seeing our first, we're seeing our first members double, triple the size of their practice. The first, you know, the first few accountants that are tipping over the a million are now coming through and we're seeing those stories. So we're, we're definitely on a mission at the moment to help people realise that growth isn't just about winning new business or growth isn't just about a team. We're on a mission to really talk to people about what is really needed. And we've got a lovely week coming up at the end of October where Carbon is kindly sponsoring our Amplify the Growth Week. So we've got two sessions that Carbon are running for us. So for us, it's it's about taking our taking our membership, growing it, not at all cost, we aim to be that one-stop shop for growth. So we've got the accountants recruiters. So we help our members, but also some non-members get and find the right people, which is why we're really, really close. We're adding more and more what I would call specialists in. So we are that one-stop shop for growth. But for us, it's it's not just about the coaching or the networking. It's about the strength of the community and being able to really help our members through that 6360 degree of growth. So that's that's where we're going. You know, our membership is just going from strength to strength. You read anything that our members put out there at the moment and the love is really evident. So hopefully that gives you a view where we're going. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Heather, it's been wonderful to uh, spend, spend the hour with you this afternoon. Hugely appreciate your efforts, not only in the industry, but also your partnership with with Carbon. And I, I know it's get it getting on to Friday evening, so I'm sure you've got plenty of 
plenty of social engagement and places to be, things to do. So we, we enormously appreciate your time today. <laughs> well, thank you for asking me, Stuart. I've, I've really enjoyed this opportunity. Heather, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you found this discussion interesting, fun, you'll find lots more to help you run a successful accounting firm at Carbon Magazine. There are more than a thousand free resources there, including guides, articles, templates, webinars, and more. Just head to carbonhq.com/resources. I'd also love it if you could leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know you like this session. We'll be able to keep bringing you more guests for you to learn from and get inspired by. Thanks for joining and see you in the next episode of the Accounting Leaders Podcast.